It was the fourth day of July in 1776 at the meeting, the second meeting of the Continental Congress, where delegates from 12 of 13 colonies, British colonies in North America, voted to ratify a declaration of independence. Who was the 13th, you ask? The state of New York. Figures. Uh, New New York was late to the party and supposedly had not received instructions from Albany on uh, how to vote. So we can laugh at our, our brother state over there, New York. Twelve of 13 colonies voted to ratify a declaration of independence. Now, the Revolutionary War uh, against our British oppressors, sorry for those of you who were former citizens of the crown with us this morning, uh, but that Revolutionary War had already started. And so the Declaration of Independence was a formal act that for some people was already a thing. They had already declared independence from uh, King George in their hearts. They were already living that way. But when they made the official decision, when they voted to do that, right, now it was an issue for everyone. Everyone had to decide, where is my allegiance? And truthfully, as you, uh, you know, if you study the history of, of the Revolutionary War, it was actually a big issue because so many people felt strong ties of loyalty to the crown, and maybe rightly so, given Romans 13. There's a discussion to be had about that, right? So they were feeling like, man, I shouldn't be rebelling against the king and the government, and this doesn't feel right. But then now their colony has declared that there's a new government, and there's a new era, and they have to figure out, well, am I going to be loyal to the king? Am I going to be loyal to my neighbors? And it, it was really kind of an awkward situation. Now, some, like I said, had already decided, but many, maybe most, were torn and some of those who were torn played both sides as long as they could. Drug their feet, kind of, you know, wouldn't make a commitment. It was really an awkward period politically for them, and it could have tremendous consequences. In one sense, that political circumstance, that awkwardness, is a metaphor for our own struggle with sin as Christians. Jesus' death and resurrection was effectively a declaration of independence from sin for us. When Jesus was victorious over sin and death by rising from the dead, right? When, when he won that victory, it was the declaration of independence from sin for all who trust in him. Even though that is true, we still struggle. I still struggle, and I know you still struggle. And so like those colonists in 1776, we kind of have to figure out, well, where does my allegiance actually lie? And in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, the Apostle Paul addresses this very issue. And he connects it. He connects our battle with sin on a daily basis as Christians, that, that practical struggle we all have. He connects that directly to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so really, it's a fitting passage for us to look at on a Resurrection Sunday, not only because it has to do with Jesus' resurrection, but it has to do with why does it matter for us? What should that mean for me? And so this morning, as we get into these verses, I just want to encourage you to ask the question personally, where does my allegiance lie? Not necessarily formally, but in actuality. What does my life say about my allegiance? Or what is my relationship with sin? How is that struggle going? Now, we're, we're dropping in the middle of the book of Romans, so let me just give you a, just a quick reminder about what Romans is all about. Romans is all about the proclamation of the gospel. 
Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that accomplishes salvation for anyone who believes. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. So for anybody who trusts in Jesus, there is forgiveness available. There's righteousness available. Paul goes on to argue that everybody needs this righteousness. Nobody has it. Doesn't matter where you are, what kind of, uh, where you're from, what kind of family you grew up in, how much money's in your bank account, how long you've gone to church. It doesn't matter. Everybody is a sinner who needs to be declared righteous. And so he goes on to argue that Jesus is the solution, that there is righteousness available for us, but it's only available through faith in Jesus. That's really the heart, the central argument of the book of Romans But as Paul goes on to talk about the gospel, he says, we need to ask the question, so what? And on Friday night, we talked about how the result of the gospel, one result is that we actually have peace with God, peace and access to grace and hope. And in chapter five, the apostle Paul just reminds us that you're either in Adam or in Christ. And if you're in Adam, you're still dead in your sins. But there's a connection between death and sin, an inseparable connection, actually, between death and sin. But when we've trusted in Christ, we now have have become connected with and identified with the new Adam, the better Adam, Jesus, who not only died for our sins, but who conquered death, which means he conquered sin and death in his resurrection. Now, this message is radical. The message is so clear and it's so simple. The apostle Paul and the other disciples went around just, just proclaiming this message. Anybody can be forgiven of their sins by repenting and turning to Jesus in faith. It's that simple. Anyone can be welcomed into heaven. Anybody can be welcomed into God's family. Anybody can be called a son or a daughter of God by simply trusting in Jesus, by transferring their allegiance from the old Adam to the new Adam, right? And it's so, it's so counterintuitive, right, because of our need to perform and maybe sinfully our, our self-centeredness. It's so counterintuitive to humble ourselves and to trust entirely in someone else. There was a lot of objection to this gospel message. And one of the objections that that comes with the preaching of the gospel is this. It's too easy. It's too easy. You're telling me that all I have to do is trust in Jesus and that's it? Don't I have to like climb a mountain or something or like, you know, like endure many years of long expository preaching sermons? Like, isn't that what I have to do in order to earn God's favor? Don't I have to give a lot of money to the church? I have to like... What's the catch? Like, isn't there, you know, what do I have to do to actually make this happen? And so it's too easy. And a second objection that comes right on the the heels of that is, you know what, if it's really that easy, then why wouldn't I just do whatever I do in my life, sin as much as I want, and then I know, because I know I'm forgiven. So it's like I have a free pass. I can just sin and sin and sin. No, I'm good. I I prayed the prayer. Jesus has me covered. I'm good. And just, you know, if, if more sin means more grace and God is glorified by more grace, then I should sin more. You know, it's that kind of twisted logic. We'll get there. And so that's why in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul directly addresses the issue of our relationship with sin on a daily basis. He answers this objection, grace means you should just sin more. Or isn't that what the gospel really results in? So watch verse 1 of chapter 6 as he starts to explain it. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin So that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So just so we're really clear, Paul says this objection that the proclamation of the gospel, that any sinner can be declared righteous and forgiven by faith in Jesus, 
the objection that that will result in more sin because people will feel free to just sin. He says that is not what the gospel does to people. He says, should we, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It's, it's an anti-Christian, anti-God worldview. And so he answers with that, that negative in verse 2, absolutely not. Some translations, no way, may it never be. No, 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 right? However you translate it. The answer is no. If you really have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you're not going to take that as license to do whatever you want. I can do whatever I want on Friday night because I'm going to go to church on Sunday. That's not how the gospel works. But notice, it's not how the gospel works because of what the gospel does to our relationship with sin. Verse 2, right in the middle. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul uses the analogy here of death to make the point. And he says, Christians are dead to sin. Watch, he keeps the argument going in verse 3, and he connects it to, to Jesus. He says, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, real quick, there was no such thing as a Christian who wasn't baptized when the Apostle Paul wrote Romans, okay? Jesus told the disciples, go make disciples and baptize them. So that's what they did. So every Christian was baptized, right? So he's going to take the, the symbolic significance of baptism, what it pictures here, he's going to teach a theological lesson from it, all right? He's not saying baptism actually takes away your sin. No, faith in Jesus does that, but baptism pictures that. But notice what he focuses on in verse 3. He says, are you, or, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, Christians, right, were baptized into his death? We were baptized. When we went under the water, it's like when Jesus died. We identified with Jesus in his death. We died with him, is what he's saying. Verse 4, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Paul says what baptism pictures are identification with Jesus' death and his resurrection. That actually pictures that we died to sin with Jesus when he died. And as Jesus rose from the dead, so we too now have risen to newness of life. That doesn't mean we won't literally rise from the dead in the future. There's an already not yet tension here, as we'll see the Apostle Paul explain. But his point is very clear. If you are actually a Christian, your relationship to sin has absolutely and fundamentally changed. It's a declaration of independence. You're dead to sin. And if you're dead to sin, how can you still live in it? He points out that Jesus was raised uh, by the glory of the Father. And just like that, we also are raised by the glory of the Father. So it's, it's the glory of God that's on display when Jesus conquers sin and death. And whenever someone comes to faith in Jesus and they identify with his death and resurrection, God's glory is on display. But that moment, that moment of trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, make no mistake, it does something to you. It messes you up. Like big time. Because now your, your relationship to sin has changed. You have been raised to what Paul calls here newness of life. A new way of living. It's, a, it's different from the old way. Watch verse 5. Paul writes, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, 
we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul says, it's not, it's not like, uh, well, I got the first part, but not the second part. If, you, if you're united with his death, you're united with his resurrection. And that one day will be a literal resurrection. In light of that reality, Paul says, who's going around saying, Eric, I got a free pass to sin and do whatever I want? No way. Here's the main idea of the passage this morning. In Christ, we are dead to sin. So live like it. In Christ, we are dead to sin. So live like it. We, we first, I think, need to address the issue that in the gospel, by faith, we identify with Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You are not in Christ. You are in Adam. And so you are not dead to sin. You are alive to sin. And I just point that out to say that the gospel is a beautiful, it's the most beautiful message you could ever hear. And the message is simple, that you can be forgiven of your sins and granted eternal life. And that salvation is offered not by you getting your act together and changing your behavior and making yourself more attractive to God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. With full knowledge of your failures, of your sin, of the ugliness of your heart, Jesus died in your place. And the gospel message is simple. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. By repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus, you can be declared righteous and forgiven instantly. But when you trust Christ, your relationship to sin changes. You identify with his death and his resurrection. If you're here this morning and that message is new to you, I would love to talk with you more about it. That's why we're here, to make and mature disciples of Jesus. The question you have to ask is, am I in Christ? And if you are in Christ, you are dead to sin. Your relationship with sin has changed. So the obvious application here is live like it. This is essentially a warning against what some people call, and then they called it this 20 years ago. I don't know if they still call it that, but we might call it easy believism. Okay, where, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. People that will say they're a Christian, right? Oh yeah, I put my faith in Jesus. Maybe I signed a card, you know, at a revival somewhere. Like I had a moment when I was like really affected at youth camp one time or, you know, at some really, you know, impactful service or some time, you know, moment out in nature. I was hiking in the woods and I just felt really close to God. So yeah, I'm a Christian. The warning is if you say you're a Christian and you're still living in sin, your relationship to sin hasn't changed. That's a problem. Like that's not Okay. That's not, that's not normal. That's not what God calls us to as believers. If, you're, if we are dead in, in uh, Christ to sin, we should live like it, right? If we're dead to sin in Christ, we should live like it. Imagine the 13 colonies declaring their independence and then still paying taxes to King George. And some of the Brits here are like, yeah, well, you know, we're going to get you one way or the other, right? <laughs> uh, we, were, we were in London on a tour. This is Side note, we were in London on a tour of the, the Tower of London, and the tour, uh, Royal Beef Eater, the tour guide there says, um, are there any Americans here? And, you know, so we're like, Ooh, you know, raise your hands. He says, just think, if you're willing to pay your taxes, all this history could be yours. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. So uh, I still didn't give him any tax money, though, because independence has been declared. The relationship has changed, Right. It would be ridiculous for those 13 colonies to declare independence from Great Britain and then keep paying the taxes. But you know what? There are a lot of people who are walking around claiming allegiance to Jesus, right? And they're still paying taxes to sin. They're still living enslaved to sin. 
There's no radical change in their life. There's no fundamental change in their relationship to sin. And yet, if you ask them, am I a believer? Are you a believer? They would say, well, yeah, sure. I signed the card 10 years ago. I had that moment when I was at snow camp. I had that, that, that moment when I was out hiking. And, and so, yeah, I mean, of course, I, yeah, I'm a Christian. And Paul says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? So grace may multiply? No, 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 no way. Our identification with Jesus leads to a real breaking of sin's power over us. Talk about that more in a moment. He's going to develop that. But the picture here in these first five verses is that picture of baptism, the newness of life because of the resurrection of Jesus. We've sung about it. We've affirmed it in our greeting. But the most beautiful, uh, I think, outflowing of this truth is that Jesus died died for our sins and rose from the dead. And because he did that, we have newness of life right now. If you're a Christian, you have newness of life right now. So yes, there's this already not yet. We look forward to physical resurrection one day. And by the way, we look forward to that especially because our bodies break down. And we we face the, the realities of sin. And unfortunately, should the Lord tarry, we will experience that darkest valley of death where our body will finally cease to function. And as we, as we do battle with serious sickness, with cancer, with illness, right, with all these ugly truths, the fact is that Jesus was victorious over them, and one day we will rise. Just like Jesus. In light of that, we should live like it. Like, live like it today. The newness of life is genuinely new. Now, let's talk about that for just a moment before we move on, okay? Sometimes, when someone comes to faith in Jesus, the circumstances of their life dramatically change, right? So, they were involved in uh, serious sin before that had uh, large consequences in their life, and then they trusted in Christ, and so the transformation that is visible is huge, it's, it's like, wow, I used to be involved in this, and now I've been changed, and now I'm not involved in that anymore, right? And so we praise God for those stories, and many of you have those kinds of stories. And how awesome is that? Because your transformation, the change of your life, that newness of life for you, it glorifies God, which is awesome. For others, though, maybe we did grow up in a Christian home. Maybe we weren't involved in sin that had big consequences, and it was, and it was uh, easy to see the ugliness of it. And so when you came to faith in Jesus, the change in your life was less dramatic to the observer from the outside, but it was no less miraculous on the inside. Because any time a sinner comes to faith in Jesus, a miracle has happened. The dead have been raised. And so that newness of life, whether it was Apostle Paul-like, where I was going to persecute Christians, and then Jesus just stopped me, right? Or whether it's I grew up in a Christian home, and I came to faith at a young age. In both of those cases, a miracle has happened, God is glorified, and both of those Christians have newness of life right now. Paul says, you have it, because Jesus rose from the dead. So live like it. So live like it. Paul makes the point even more clear in the next section. Watch verse 6. He goes on. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we pause here, Paul's argument is not that sin is just a physical problem. That's not what he's saying. 
He says, when Jesus was crucified, our old self was crucified with him. The, the old self is the self that is enslaved to sin. Okay, that, that bondage that we have in sin pre-Jesus. So Paul says, our old self, and same kind of thinking in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, but our, our old allegiance, the old self that was just obedient to sin, right, that that's how we functioned, that was crucified with Jesus. We identified with his death, and the old me died with Jesus, so that the body ruled by sin, namely me, that might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. The declaration of independence from sin. I am now freed from sin's authority over my life. I am no longer a slave to sin, Paul says here. Because if someone's died, they're freed from sin. So that's the analogy. Jesus died to sin. We died with Jesus. We're freed from sin. Watch verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's a package deal, the death and resurrection thing, which is pretty cool. Because he's saying it's not just that he died and we died with him, but it's that he rose, he's risen indeed, and therefore we live with him. And we will live with him, but right now we have experienced spiritually that newness of life. We know that we will also live with him, verse 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. This is so good. Death no longer rules over him. Death no longer rules over him. In Romans chapter 5, Paul argues very clearly that sin and death are, are inseparably connected. And so when he says death no longer rules over him, the implication for you and me is death no longer rules over me, but more importantly, sin no longer rules over me. I'm no longer enslaved to sin. Jesus defeated death, which means he defeated sin, which means I am no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 10, kind of boiling it down. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So now, the idea is no longer having this enslavement to sin. Well, now, how do we live? Well, we live to God, which means we live for God. We live with our lives centered around God and his purposes. See, what Paul argues here in verses 6 to 10 is that our freedom from sin is a result of Jesus' resurrection. Our freedom from sin is a result of Jesus' resurrection. At least in three ways, right? First of all, the old self was crucified with Christ. So we're no longer in Adam, we're in Jesus. And that means that a real and significant change has occurred in our relationship to sin because jesus actually rose from the dead sin actually was defeated and therefore those who trusted in him now have an actual change in their relationship to sin death no longer rules over him which means sin no longer rules over us that's so important for us to grab hold of the old self was crucified but short of our own resurrection we still battle with the old self that's what Paul argues in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. We still, we still, we still struggle with our, the old self. And if we ever bought for just even a moment that lie that says it's not that big of a deal because of God's grace, Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? No, no, we're dead to sin. Sin is no longer my master. Because our freedom from sin is a result of Jesus' resurrection. 
So our old self was crucified. Secondly, there, we're freed from slavery to sin. Get it, say it this way. You're freed from slavery to sin. You have permission to disobey. My children would love permission to disobey. And they're right here. So you don't have it. But spiritually, you have it, right? Permission to disobey. I mean, if we're not enslaved to sin anymore, if death no longer has power over Jesus, therefore sin no longer has power over us, when we are tempted to do something that dishonors God, when we're tempted to speak in a way that dishonors God, when we're tempted to have attitudes and harbor attitudes that dishonor God, you have permission because of the Continental Congress to say no. You can say no because of Jesus' death and resurrection. You can have a, a clear conscience to say no. You don't have to give in to that temptation. Because third, we now live to God. Or for God. We live with lives centered around God's glory and God's calling. This is the newness of life part, right? Where it's like, well, if we no longer live to, to the master's sin, who do, we get, who do we take orders from? And the answer is Jesus. We take orders from Jesus. He'll go on later in the chapter to say that we're slaves to righteousness. Or a little later, we're slaves to God. So it's not like, oh, we've been freed from the taskmaster sin. We can just do whatever we want. That, by the way, that way of thinking will lead you right back into sin. Paul says, no, we're, sli- we're freed from that master, and we have a better master, a kind and good master who, who is not cruel, but who loves us more than we can understand. And so now we are slaves to Jesus, slaves to righteousness, slaves to God. We have this newness of life that we're called to. It's living a life that's centered on God's glory, not on our own glory. So we've been transformed. How we respond to temptation directly relates to how we understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because when you're tempted, the way you need to think is, man, I really want to say this, do this. I really want to keep thinking this way. But Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. And death no longer rules over him, so sin no longer rules over me. When you're tempted, you remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And let's not live in some kind of pseudo-spiritual, you know, fog where we claim allegiance to Jesus, but really we just want to keep doing what we want to do. There is authority in the Christian's life. Jesus is not just Savior. He is Lord, King over all kings. It's like when the Israelites were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. You remember that? Uh, Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, they're rescued out of slavery in Egypt by God's grace as Moses leads them in deliverance. God proves his glory over the so-called gods of Egypt with the plagues. He rescues them from Pharaoh's army, dramatically leading them on dry ground through the Reed Sea. All that. God's glory is clearly on display. They get on the other side of that. He leads them into the wilderness. And of course, they start complaining. And in one uh, rather unfortunate passage in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, the Israelites complained about missing the seafood in Egypt. Now listen, I don't know how the seafood was in Egypt 4,000 years ago. All right. But the fact is, however good that seafood was, it wasn't that good. 
God has rescued them from slavery, and he's leading them to this land that he's promised them and will provide for them wholly and completely by his grace, his gracious provision. They don't have to lift a finger. They just have to follow him. And they're going, yeah, but the fish in Egypt was so good. <laughs> like, I just miss it, right? They're like having this, again, it, it's, it, it was false spirituality. They weren't trusting in the Lord. They just wanted what they wanted. And sometimes we do the same thing. Where here Jesus has died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he's leading us in newness of life. And sometimes we look, we look back and we go, oh, but I just want to go to that party. I just wish I could, I could you know, laugh at that joke. Why can't I just fit in with my neighbor? They just do that. All the stuff, the old stuff we used to do. Why can't I just do that? Because our freedom from sin is a result of Jesus' resurrection. In Jesus, we've died to sexual sin. But are you still pursuing sexual sin? In Jesus, we died to bitterness. But are you still harboring bitterness in your heart? In Jesus, we died to speaking harshly with others. But are you giving yourself a free pass at school and at work for speaking in ways that don't honor God? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? No, 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 no. In Christ, we are dead to sin, so live like it. Just so we don't miss the point, Paul makes it crystal clear in verse 11. Watch verse 11. He says, So, you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is a command. It's not just an observation. Why does Paul have to command it? He has to command it because he knows that we still struggle with our old selves, that we're still struggling with the temptation. So he says, okay, everybody, listen up. Here's what you're going to do. You want it to do? You want a task? Here's your task. Think differently about your relationship to sin. The command is to think differently. Consider yourselves, okay? So think about yourselves, okay? You're good at this. You do it naturally, all right? So, but think about yourself specifically in what way? Consider yourselves, what? Dead to sin. So just understand that the declaration of independence because of Jesus' death and resurrection applies to you. You are dead to sin. In Christ, we are dead to sin. Okay, so you are not only dead to sin, but also then, because Jesus rose from the dead, you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. We no longer live in Adam, enslaved to sin. Now we live in Christ, and we are enslaved to God. This is our newness of life. This is what we are called to. And one commentator said it this way, and I just thought it was so good, and I just want to give it to you there for your notes. But he said, in, in, this, in, this, uh, in light of this reality, okay, sin's unchallenged, unresisted reign is over. And that was C.E.B. Cranfield who said that, and I just thought it was so helpful. Sin's unchallenged, unresisted reign is over. You could misread these verses and think in them that's, that Christians don't struggle with sin. But that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying you don't str- struggle with sin. He's saying... Sin's unchallenged, unresisted reign in a Christian's life is over. Right? It's go time. 
And now when sin rears its ugly head and your old self wants to go back to those old ways, you throw the gloves off and we go and we fight. We battle, we wage war. It's not just, okay, yes, and I just do whatever my old self wants me to do. Right? No, now, now, now we fight. Now there's a struggle. There's a difference. What's at stake here? Well, my friend John Owen said it this way back in the 1600s. And this, this is actually very powerful, I think, the imagery. Because you think, well, what matters? If I'm forgiven anyway, what, what's the point? Well, he says, as sin weakens, so it darkens the soul. If we don't fight it, it weakens us and it darkens the soul. It is a cloud, a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. As a Christian, as you're called to walk in newness of life, you grow in the knowledge of God's love and grace. And in the analogy here with John Owen, that's like sunlight shining on your soul. But when we tolerate sin in our lives, when we say it's not a big deal, right, and we don't address it, that's like allowing a cloud to cover our soul so that we don't get the a- access to these rays of light, of, of the beams of God's love and favor. He says it takes away all sense of the privilege of our adoption. We forget what we've been saved from and what we're saved for. And if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of consolation, sin quickly scatters them. So as you struggle and the gospel would comfort you, if you tolerate sin, those thoughts will be scattered. And you're stuck in shame and guilt, despair, all the rest. You see, in Christ, we're dead to sin, so live like it. And just, you, just, you just say, sin, your unchallenged, unresisted time and my soul is over. If you want to play, it's going to be a fight. We'll go to war. And another analogy, another one from John Owen, he uses a weeding metaphor. And he says, basically, it's kind of like uh, tending to a garden. And so because spring has gloriously just about arrived, right? And we're all uh, hitting the Claritin really hard you know, because of that, right? Uh, and, and we're just, you know, starting to get those glimpses. That the tulips are starting to come out. And, you know, the, there's life, signs of life, right? But if you don't tend to your garden, weeds will grow, right? And if you allow weeds to grow, they will, not to give a, like a... <laughs> Uh, a gardening, you know, lesson this morning. But if you allow weeds to grow, they will absorb nutrients that your plants, the ones you want, like that those plants need. And so if you allow weeds to grow, they will choke out the life from the other plants. And maybe they might not die all the way, but they won't bloom as gloriously. They won't be as healthy because the weeds are, are taking up those resources. Owen says that's sin in your heart when you don't address it. When you don't address sin in your life, when you just tolerate it, is that that's just like letting weeds take over the garden. And then spiritually, you'll feel weak. You'll feel discouraged. You'll have more struggles. And you'll wonder, why am I struggling so much? And you say, well, look around at this garden. We're not tending the garden. He said, mortification, that's putting sin to death, prunes all the graces of God and makes room for them in our hearts to grow. It's like, you deal with the sin so that you can grow in the knowledge of God's grace. These aren't acts that we do to earn God's favor. These are acts that we do because we love God, because we want to grow in the knowledge of his grace. Well, what if you're struggling? We're all struggling, one degree or another. 
But maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm really struggling with a particular area of sin. Maybe it's been something you've struggled with for a long time. Well, the first thing you need to do, I would say, is confess it as sin. Call it what it is. Don't justify it. Don't sweep it under the rug or ignore it. You go to the Lord in prayer and you say, Lord, forgive me. I have sinned by saying this, by doing this, by thinking this. You call it what it is. But don't just confess it as sin. Look to Jesus. Because as we look to Jesus, who do we see? We see the one who conquered sin and death because he died and rose. We look to the risen Savior. And when we look to the risen Savior, what do we find? We find grace and love and mercy and hope. So we look to Jesus and we take encouragement from that. Right? We pull the weeds, right? And then we water the plants with the gospel. And then, brothers and sisters, we fight. You go to battle for the sake of Jesus. He is your new authority. And you say, Jesus, how can I live in a way that glorifies you in this particular area? It's my speech, it's my attitude, whatever. How can I glorify you in this area? What we don't want to think is we don't want to think, well, if I'm not perfect, then God's not happy with me. Trust me, God doesn't think you're perfect, okay? He knows. And so the idea is not that, well, I become a Christian, now I won't struggle with sin. No, that's not, that's not, that's exact, that's the opposite of what Paul's saying. He has to command us to think of ourselves in this way because he knows we're going to struggle. So he says, think of yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how you need to remember right, who you are because who you are is linked directly to Jesus' victory over sin in his death and his resurrection. In Christ, we're dead to sin, so we live like it. So while we certainly strive for holiness, we don't have this delusion that we could live perfectly now, short of glory, right? So we know it's going to be a struggle. And that's why, by the way, um, in, in the church community, it's so important that you have opportunity to be honest about your struggle with sin with somebody. Because if you're going around just pretending all the time that you don't struggle with sin, you're just a liar, like, every, we all know everybody's struggling, and we don't all have to know everybody struggles. That's not the point. But the point is, you need somewhere in a care group, in a Bible study, in a one-on-one discipleship relationship, you need somewhere where you're able to say, I'm struggling with this. Because if you never tell anybody that you're struggling, chances are you're not waging war. And if you think it's not that big of a deal, well, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? No. No. In Christ, we are dead to sin. So brothers and sisters, live like it. After the Continental Congress, Second Continental Congress, voted to declare independence from Great Britain, now they had a problem. Although the Continental Army had already been created, it was illegal up to that point. And so now it was legally a thing that they had a Continental Army But they had a continental army that didn't have very many troops and it didn't have any supplies. And so the colonists of those 13 colonies, again, New York, late to the party, had to decide, well, now we've declared independence. It's time to send supplies and sons. The supplies, maybe some could afford it. Most of the people that were living in the colonies were scraping out an existence through hard work, so they weren't necessarily like super wealthy, right? There were some wealthy people there, but not, the, not most. So to send supplies was costly. 
to send sons? Well, that's a whole other discussion, isn't it? To send husbands and sons and grandsons to go and to fight? Well, you've got to really believe in that Declaration of Independence to do that. Brothers and sisters, my fear is that Jesus has died for our sins, risen from the dead, declared our independence from sin, and we're still supplying the enemy. We have not counted the cost. We're flirting with both sides, dragging our feet, just trying to have a little fun on the side and then show up to church every once in a while to make God good, you know, make, make my account good with the Lord. And all of that, we've absolutely fundamentally missed the point of the gospel. Hear me very clearly. God doesn't save us because we say no to sin. He doesn't forgive you because you've performed well. He rescues us and forgives us by his grace, just for his glory. But part of his glory is now that we walk in newness of life. And if you're here and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, your relationship with sin has been broken because Jesus rose from the dead. You are dead to sin. The question is, will you live like it? Would you please pray with me and we'll ask God to help us live like it. Lord, we thank you for really this uh, beautiful portion of your word where you explain to us how we should relate to sin in light of your death and resurrection. And Lord, we confess that we still struggle. And there are many days that we give in to temptation. And when we do so, Lord, we confess that we have forgotten that we are dead to sin because of your death and resurrection. So, Lord, I pray that we would remember the significance of your victory. Lord, that we wouldn't have spiritual amnesia, but we would, with clarity, every day, remember that your resurrection means something for us. And, Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us to live in this newness of life that you have raised us to. Lord, we praise you that we look forward to our literal resurrection because of your victory. But in the meantime, Lord, help us. Help us to say no to temptation. And Lord, when we struggle and fail, help us to turn to you, not out of a sense of obligation or some kind of self-validation, but Lord, to turn to you because the victory's been won. And because your grace and your mercy is available to us every day in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would tend our gardens well, that we would live in ways that bring you glory, that we wouldn't justify sin, that we wouldn't tolerate sin, and certainly that we wouldn't think that if we sin more, you'll get more glory. Lord, help us to remember that because of your death and resurrection, that we are dead to sin, and we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, help us to live like it. Even now as we go, we pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.